Welcome to Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, where each week we explore a different facet of one of the largest, nearly intact, temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. Hi, this is Gary Robson. I'm the Executive Director at the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary. I have a new co-host joining me today, Eden Wondra. Hi, I'm Eden, and I'm excited to be a part of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem podcast. I'm the new Education Manager and you came to us from Yosemite National Park, right? Yes, I came from Yosemite where I was also doing environmental education and working as a manager at the park. So our topic for today is one that's highly appropriate both in Yellowstone and Yosemite, all those Y places. And that's that favorite springtime subject of the bears are waking up. Yes, we had a major problem with black bears in Yosemite, so I'm quite familiar with that. Now, you did a lot of backcountry work there, right? Yes, we would bring students on backpacking trips, and so they would have to learn how to deal with black bears in the backcountry and what was a safe protocol for that. One of our very first episodes of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, back when it was two minutes in the Yellowstone Ecosystem, was the bears waking up in the spring and that was three years ago we did that one Uh, we've we've had a little interlude since then with no episodes Uh, so it's time now that we're in our longer format to really spend a little bit more time addressing that and to help us out in doing that today we have a guest kylie kemble i'm kylie kemble i work for montana fish wildlife and parks as the bear management technician for fish wildlife and parks is region five our main office billing is in billings Kylie came to us to speak for our Earth Day talk series this year. She is a perfect person for this topic. Now, our bears here at the Wildlife Sanctuary do sleep the winter away, just like wild bears would. There are some facilities that keep their bears up all winter. In our case, we like to let the bears do what they would do if they were in the wild, because the animals here at the sanctuary, for the most part, come from the wild. So that means about five months of sleeping the winter away every year. What happens during those five months? Our black bears don't do much during those five months. They're not eating, they aren't drinking, they're not going to the bathroom. Kylie, maybe you can walk us through that bear biology and behavior month by month. March and April this time of year. Bears are waking up, they're eating grasses, roots, and bulbs, and any winter kill that they can find. In May, June, and July, bears are breeding that time of year. Um, They're making use of fawns and calves that elk and deer lay on the ground, they're eating those, Um, and at the end of that period the natural berries are starting to come on. August, September, October, That's when bears start to enter what we call hyperphagia, and hyperphagia is excessive eating. And they're eating a lot of wild berries this time of year, Um, white bark, ants, anything that they can get their hands on. They're eating upwards of 20,000 calories every single day. It's like 180,000 huckleberries in one day. Takes a lot of time. Our bears have their appetites increased just like the wild ones because they hibernate here, because they have those same behaviors. And with our largest of our bears last year, He was getting about 20 pounds of produce and about seven pounds of other foods. We were trying to give him lots of proteins and fats to really pack on the weight like I like to do in the winter. 
so he was getting everything from honey to peanut butter to really rich fruits, avocados, nuts, uh, macadamias are an especial favorite of his, which is really unfortunate because they're so darn expensive. Fall in Yosemite was one of the times you could almost guarantee the students to see a bear because they were not focused on avoiding people at that time. All they cared about was eating. So they were out there in the oak trees, out in the fields, out in the open, all day long, just eating, eating, eating. (laughs) And that's something you really have to watch out for when you're out hiking in bear country in the fall, and to a lesser extent in the spring where they've just awakened and they're hungry. Uh, But it's, it's more so during that hyperphagia where you can surprise a bear And you really need to avoid going into places that are prime food sources for bears. Mm -hmm. If there is a fallen, rotting tree that's likely to be full of grubs or moths, uh, if you happen across a carcass... Now, black bears aren't nearly as likely to be attracted to a carcass as grizzly bears are. Grizzlies eat a lot more meat. But during that hyperphagic period in the fall... A black bear will eat just about anything. Mm-hmm. Are there any differences in the behavior of the black bears in Yosemite where there are no grizzlies versus here where there are? So in Yosemite, there haven't been grizzlies in quite a while. There used to be, and maybe the behavior of the black bears there used to be different because of that. But from what I've seen, black bears can be a bit more bold in Yosemite where they are the large bear out and about versus in a place like Red Lodge or Yellowstone those black bears are going to shy away from any any grizzly territory or mother and cub bears that they may be seeing around. Well Kylie let's get back to your timeline what happens after that hyperphagic period? That's when bears start to enter their den and the egg implants. So then January, February birthdays. That's when cubs are born. And they're born at about 14 ounces. So they're breeding in June. The egg fertilizes, it becomes a zygote, and it free floats. It stops there. It free floats in the uterus until the end of hyperphagia when the bear takes stock of its hormone levels based on how much fat it has gained through that period. And if it's fat enough to survive, the egg will implant on the uterine wall and it will continue to grow. And then about 80, 90 days later, cubs are born. So this time of year when cubs are coming out, they're only about four pounds. Um, They grow very rapidly, but they still still are only, They're still pretty tiny, little Pomeranians. So Kylie, let's talk a little bit about what you do in the event of a bear encounter. If we encounter a bear either in in the wild or in town, in our backyards, there's a couple of basic principles that we want to keep in mind. First off, never approach bears. Always give them an easy way out. If you are walking down a trail and you see a bear, but the bear does not see you, 
then quietly and slowly remove yourself from the situation, allowing the bear to maintain his natural behaviors. If the bear does see you, you wanna stand your ground, speak calmly and in a low voice, slowly back out unless the bear starts to approach you then again stand your ground prepare your bear spray don't bother climbing trees both species of bears can climb trees <laughs> um, and in terms of laying down and playing dead that is only recommended when it is a defensive or a surprise encounter with a bear so for example if you see a sow and cubs and she approaches you and makes physical contact with you you lay down on the ground stomach down uh, cover your neck with your hands and spread your legs so that she can't roll you if she does roll you you keep rolling until you're back on your stomach again however if the bear is intent on approaching you ears forward eyes focused finding its way its most direct path to you that is what we call a predatory or intent bear. And that is a bear that if it makes physical contact with you, you wanna fight back with everything you have. It doesn't matter the species, fight back if the bear is intent on making physical contact. Again, prepare your bear spray if you have it. Really important thing about bear spray is where you carry it. You're most likely to need bear spray if you stumble across a bear and you surprise each other. A surprised bear is a dangerous bear. And if your bear spray is tucked away in the bottom of your backpack, it is absolutely useless to you. You need to have that bear spray in a holster that you can get at quickly. I carry mine usually, if I'm out hiking, on a strap across my chest, where it's easy to get at and where I won't grab my water bottle by accident. <laughs> where do you carry yours, Eden? I have a side pocket on my backpack and I don't tuck it into the backpack pocket in case it's hard to get out to. I clip it onto the lip of the pocket so it's easy to reach and slide out. And I make sure I practice that a couple times and it feels comfortable and it's not catching anything on my backpack before I start hiking. A lot of people like to use a hip holster. Some people like a chest holster. Wherever you practice with, I, I recommend inert cans. They're about $10 to purchase. Uh, it gives you some practice so that it's muscle memory if you do need to use it. So if you do, you remove it from the holster, steady it, point generally towards the front feet. You will lift and pull back on the safety and press the trigger. Give it a little shake so it creates a cloud that the bear will run into. So Kylie, we were wondering, why do you aim the bear spray at their feet? So you spray towards the front feet because it's an aerosol and as the wind catches it, it'll okay. blow up and create a cloud that he'll run into. It's not gonna sink so much. If I was to see a bear in the wild or a member of the public was to see a bear in the wild, should we report that encounter and who should we report that to? Yeah, absolutely. We like to know, first off, um, if there's a sow and cubs, either species, we like to know if she's using a particular trail. Um, if one person reports it, but five people have encountered her, we don't have enough information. If it's a single bear and there's a carcass on the side of the trail not far off, we need to know that so that we can adjust for safety uh, for the people using that trail. Um, if it's an intent bear that's following people, we need to know of that about that behavior so that we can make um, judgments based on that. Um, the more information we have, the better we can respond. 
obviously we're in Montana and Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks may give a different answer to that than Idaho or Wyoming or in fact in the park. Here in Red Lodge, we have a good-sized mountain range between us and Yellowstone Park. We haven't seen grizzlies on this side of the range in a very long time. And some years back, we started seeing more bears. Uh, talking to some of uh, your cohorts, Kylie, uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, I was hearing as many as 40, 45 grizzly bears reported on this side of the range. So why do you think their range is expanding like that? The reasons bears continue to expand out is because of resources available in the core recovery zones. We have grizzly bears, for example, in Yellowstone National Park. Well, the resources there available to the bears can only support so many bears. So after that, the females and the larger adult males tell all the young ones once they're new that, you know what, this is my food, there's not enough to share, you need to leave. And those bears start to push out. Um, and that's where we see some of the expansion from bears. We found like many other mountain towns, uh, areas out in the wild, that we will get town bears here. We'll get black bears that just uh, come out and hang out in town as long as they can find something to eat. And those town bears for the 20 years that I've lived here have all been black bears. And I'm seeing fewer of them since we've had a grizzly wandering through town the last couple of years because there's really nothing that wants to mess with a mama grizzly except a grizzly boar. <laughs> I wouldn't want to mess with a mama grizzly. <laughs> no, definitely not. So when we're talking about these town bears, one of the terms I hear sometimes is problem bear. Kylie, is there such a thing as a problem bear? All right, let's talk a little bit about bear conflicts. Um, there's a couple of terms that we like to use to describe types of behaviors in bears when it comes to conflicts. First off is food conditioning. Food conditioned bear is a bear that knows that people have food and it seeks out people resources, whether it's coolers, campgrounds, trash cans, backyards. Those are places where he can get, he or she can get easy foods and he's gonna go find those easy foods because that's what he wants right now or most anytime he's awake. The other behavior that we describe is habituation. And habituation is when a bear is used to people. He's comfortable being around people. And neither one of these behaviors is good, but the combination of the two leads to major safety concerns for people. When you see a bear hitting a trash can at 2 a.m., that's a food conditioned bear. If you see a bear walking into a yard to pick table scraps while you're still there, that's a habituated food conditioned bear. That's a very dangerous situation for everybody involved. So it really sounds like there aren't problem bears so much as maybe problem people? The bear is not the problem. The bear is just a hungry wild animal. It's not his fault. The problem is the bird feeder forgotten outside. The problem is the forgetting to push down on that trash can lid and it didn't quite latch. That's the problem and we can fix that. We can address that. And the sooner we address that, the sooner the bear goes back to the wild for natural foods and out of town. And that's what we want. 
So it's, it's less how many times the bear's relocated and how quickly we can solve the problems within the community that the bear's using, the bird feeders, the pet foods. So Kylie, if a bear is learning to break into garbage cans or has become habituated to humans, what will happen to that bear? Is there a certain number of chances that bear gets or strikes the bear has before it receives consequences? There's no three strike rule. It depends on the bear, the age, the condition. It depends on what activities they've been doing, where they've been doing it, how long we know they've been doing it, how much we can definitely attribute to that specific bear. Um, In Red Lodge last year, I think we had two or three different family groups running around. So you have to discern which one's doing what, what one's being seen in the apple tree and what one's knocking over trash cans midday. And then you have to be sure that that's the bear you got in hand. You have to be confident in that. So there's no three strike rule. What we like to do here is less trap and move, more solve the problem. If a bear gets into your trash can, what's the first thing that we should do once we notice that? It's the next morning, a bear came through. Pick up the trash and secure it. If you're using a bear resistant trash can and it's not working, ask for a replacement can, put it in a garage or a shed until you can get a replacement or a fix. And also just get creative. There's a lot of different systems that you can use out there that'll secure it short term and stop the bear from getting any more food rewards. Bear resistant products is kind of an interesting system that we have. What's the difference between bear resistant and bear proof? The Kodiak cans used in Red Lodge are bear resistant. I don't like to use the term bear proof because if a bear really wants in, he can still get in. What you want to look for in looking at bear resistant containers or systems is you want to look for an emblem that is IGBC, Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee approved. To be approved, they have to be inspected and they have to go through testing at the Grizzly Wolf Discovery Center and it has to withstand, with attractants in it, it has to withstand 60 bear minutes. So 60 minutes of a bear trying his best to get in for it to be certified. And they have a multitude of bears that may try it. It might be one bear for a full 60 minutes. It might be a couple different bears trying for over a period of time. The reason that it's 60 minutes is that what we see with wild bears is that for the most part, they're not gonna try that long and hard. When you see them walk down the alleyways, you'll see trash can, trash can, trash can knocked over. Well, what the bear does is knocks over that trash can, checks the lid, not opening, goes to the next one, He moves right on. He's not gonna work that hard because somebody didn't quite latch and he knows it. Somebody in that alleyway didn't quite do it right. And it happens, it's human error. We just have to try to remember to do our best in securing those, latching those, so that the bears get bored before the, that bear-resistant container breaks. Same with wild bears, if you're camping, they're not gonna spend that much time. There's easier foods available to them. It's nice having you here with us, Kylie, from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. We really feel that your organization does wonderful things for the wildlife here, and we appreciate your support. And uh, Lori Wolf who was on our podcast just a few episodes ago talking about how animals end up in sanctuaries. Because Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks not only goes out and takes care of animals in the wild, but actually has a rehab facility in Helena where animals can be taken in and, if possible, rehabilitated and released into the wild, and if not possible, 
they can end up at a sanctuary like ours. Um, and I do want to thank Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary for having me here today. It's facilities like these that offer great opportunities to share information with the public. And then you can just go see the bears in an appropriate, safe way. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning, much of this came from a talk that Kylie was kind enough to do here for us at the Wildlife Sanctuary for Earth Day. Um, Eden had several events set up that week. What did you do for Earth Day? For Earth Day, we had a few different speakers to start off our week, and then we had a art contest put on by the local schools in Carbon County where students submitted artwork of their favorite animal we had here at the sanctuary, and they wrote about how they like to help wildlife, and that was displayed throughout the sanctuary. We also had a booth down at the Red Lodge Community Block Party, on Saturday and held a community pickup where we picked up garbage near the park grounds around outside of the sanctuary. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, where we're going to be talking about wildlife laws here in Montana. And I'm not speaking just about hunting laws, for example, but laws about who owns wildlife, who can own wildlife, who can exhibit wildlife like we're doing here at our sanctuary, and about a bill that this sanctuary wrote and sponsored that was just signed into law by Montana's governor a little bit ago. This is new ground for us as we generally don't get involved in things political, but it's an important one that really affects the way sanctuaries like ours operate. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or if you have questions for our upcoming episode on wildlife laws, you can give us a call at 406-426-1210 and leave a text or leave a voicemail that we can go ahead and play on the air and answer your question next time around. You can also email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org. Hope to hear from you. Our hosts are Executive Director Gary Robson and Education Manager Eden Wandra. Our theme music was written and performed by Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. For more information about our podcast, please visit yellowstoneecosystem.com. To learn more about the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, please visit yellowstonewildlifesanctuary.com. I'm your announcer, Mason Williams, and I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. <laughs>